determine where to get the helicopter, Mr. Brummett. It was about dark to when you made the full report for carrying the man to go to the I saw it from the front four children that moved for about five seconds. The front four of the officer was over. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Most of the listeners, as avid fans of the UFO topic, would have heard of the sightings from World War II. These so-called Foo Fighters appeared in both the Pacific and European theaters. The Allies thought it was Axis secret technology, and the Axis Flyers thought it was Allied technology a true case of the blind leading the blind. Less than one year after the end of hostilities, a new UFO wave occurred. Yes, predating Roswell, Kenneth Arnold, and so many others. Why is this not common knowledge? Well, for one, it didn't occur in the U.S., but in Northern Europe. Secondly, these were not exactly what you would call flying saucers. In February 1946, the first reports concerning luminous fireballs and mysterious light phenomena turned up in Swedish newspapers. As the months went by, the number of reports increased, now labeled as ghost rockets, ghost bombs, ghost projectiles, or radio-controlled bombs. Also from Denmark, Norway, and Finland, now came alarming reports about phenomena which regularly were prefixed with ghosts. As the hysteria increased, the sightings seemed to become much more precise. It was no longer a question of vague ghost rockets, but exact descriptions were given of wingless, cigar-shaped bodies the size of a small airplane, and silvery bombs with swept wings. Cigar-shaped craft? Sound familiar? I'll bet you a box of the Cuban variety of cigar-shaped objects that this case can not be explained away as swamp gas, the planet Mercury, or even squid boats. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope that you're doing well. I hope you're all taking care of yourselves. I'm glad that the Northern Hemisphere is starting to get into that spring and early summer mood. I've seen a lot of people online out enjoying the weather, which is excellent. It's great to see. We're all safe and sound down here. I've been keeping out of trouble, keeping myself safe. Haven't been watching a whole lot. I've watched a few programs. Now, one of the programs that I do want to watch is a documentary about tonight's main subject, but I'll get into that a bit later on. One thing that I did listen to just a bit before recording this episode was an excellent podcast from the TNC Stable, one of my fellow podcasters, as I like to call them, a fellow cannoneer. It's an excellent little program called The Paranoid Strain. As I've said time and time again on this program, there's plenty of room for skeptics, just not debunkers. And I would definitely feel that the paranoid strain does an excellent job of keeping perspective and not just agreeing with every single conspiracy theory out there, but at the same time being fair and pointing out the fact that there are things in this world that we don't know about and we do need to find out more about. But don't just take it from me. Why don't I let the host of the paranoid strain Fearful Jesuit, fill you in. Hi, I'm Fearful Jesuit, host of The Paranoid Strain, a show that explains conspiracy theories to normal people. 
Every episode is carefully researched, fully scripted, and incorporates interviews, audio clips, original music, and a bunch of nonsense to explain the history, impact, and bizarre beliefs related to one conspiracy topic at a time. We're doing an extensive series on secret societies. You know, the Knights Templar, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and we'd love to have you along for the ride. New episodes drop every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Like I say, I think that you'll enjoy that program, especially for those of you who are wondering what is all this conspiracy theory stuff about. Let's see, aside from that this week, I've had a good time being on the Cozy Cryptid podcast with Tanner, so thanks Tanner for having me on, as always, really appreciated that. And at some point I will be getting an interview out with Tanner, it's just like I say, I've got quite a backlog of interviews to get released. Got a couple more interviews coming up this week, so it should be good. It's been keeping me busy, something to plan, and hopefully I'll have some things ahead because uh, if I have to go back out in the workforce, it would be good to have some interviews already recorded. Now, the interview I did on the Banana Show is out, and if you follow social media, I'll have links to all that on the Fortunate Son podcast. And then I'll probably just repost those stories over on the Paranormal Sun. We talk a very, very briefly about the paranormal side, but that episode was much more about mental health. And those of you who have followed both programs and those of you who know me will know that mental health and mental health awareness is something that is very near and dear to my heart, both myself and my experiences, but also people who have been around me over the years. And unfortunately, some people who have harmed themselves are taking their own lives. So it is something, like I say, that I always advocate for whenever I can. And although I don't host The Fortunate Son on an ongoing basis, I do try to make these appearances elsewhere. And like I say, you can find links to those on the social media. I'll have them posted by the time this program is released. So, aside from that, Dave... From the old 77, Dave, our chapter president in Missouri, thanks so much for giving me a heads up about the 60 Minutes piece that came out about UAPs slash UFOs and especially having Luis Elizondo on there, some of the pilots from the Nimitz. Look, I watched that. I found it on YouTube and I've got a link in the show notes for those of you who may want to watch it. If you haven't had a chance, it's only about 15 minutes. I thought it was very well done. I mean... We still had a little bit of the commentary being made that, oh, don't you think this sounds crazy or don't you think this sounds out there? But all in all, considering that it is mainstream media, I thought they did a pretty good job covering it. And again, Dave, you may very well be right about this slowly, slowly trickle disclosure. And I, I don't know what's going to come out next month. Like I say, personally, I've got my feelings and I've said it on the air many times. But um, we'll have a bit more about that a little bit later on in the program uh, towards the end of the News of the Damned. So for those of you who might be wondering where you can follow the program, where you can find out more about the Paranormal Sun, how you can support the program, the best way is to either go to the Instagram page, which is the underscore paranormal underscore sun, you can go there and there's a link in my bio that will basically take you everywhere you want to go. Everything from 
the ParanormalSun.com website to the show's hosting on ACAST, so you can listen to the program there. There's also links to merchandise. You can buy Paranormal Sun merchandise if you so choose. There's all kinds of links there, so there's pretty much everything that you would want to do. Now, the alternate site where you can find that link at is if you just go into the show notes of any of these episodes wherever you're listening. I know that Apple doesn't like links for whatever reason, but I have posted both a hot link there, so it says you can support the show here. You can click on that, or you can copy and paste the link underneath into your browser and go and check it out. And that, like I say, that's got everything. And you can always email me also at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. And again, thanks so much for the support you've already given me, to the listeners, to everyone who's gone and rated and reviewed the program. And for those of you who continue to listen on a weekly basis especially, look, it does mean the world to me. I know that there are people all over the world listening, and trust me, I do appreciate it. It gives me great satisfaction to know that you've got some value in what I do. And also, it continues to push me to try and do more and do better programs for you and bring to you things like tonight's subject that you may not have heard of. And like I say, if there's ever anything that you would want me to cover over, get a hold of me. I got contacted earlier today from Michaela at Murder Squared Podcast, who's a good supporter of the program. And she mentioned to me, she said, hey, JT, have you ever heard of this certain cryptid? Now, I can't remember the the name that she gave me of it, but it equated to being the goat man. And I said to her, yeah, that's the problem with a lot of these things is that they get so many different names that I may know it by another name. And sure enough, I googled whatever the name was. It was this Pope, Pope something monster. It might be Pope Creek or Pope Bridge. And then it came up as the Goat Man, and I said, oh, yeah, no, I know the Goat Man, and I've got it on my radar. So at some point, I will get to the Goat Man, along with all the other hundreds of subjects that I've got. But yeah, like I say, if there is ever anything that you're really wondering about, let me know, and I'll try and move it up. I will try and get to the Goat Man, or if there's not enough out there about the Goat Man, then I'll try and roll it into the state of Kentucky and cover a bit more of that. But that's probably going to be in Season 4 as the rest of Season 3 is pretty much planned out. Now we're going to get into the news of the damned. And for those of you who may be new to the program, you're not sure what the news of the damned is, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. And he was one of the first people who really started categorizing a lot of these subjects that we enjoy. And he gathered clippings from all over the world, from magazines and especially newspapers. And he started gathering together notes on lights in the sky, ghost ships, cryptids, all kinds of things like this. And then he published a series of books with not only these articles in them, but also some of his own thoughts. Well, Charles Fort referred to anything that was excluded or ignored by science as damned data. Therefore, every time we do the news segment, it's referred to as the news of the damned as an homage to Charles Ford. Now, on this episode, we've got a very good mix of stories. And again, thanks, Dave, 
for cluing me in about the UFO stuff, about this UFO UAP stuff, because I've got a couple articles about that. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go through these other articles first, and then we're going to save the 60-minute stuff for last, because, yeah, I, uh, I want to wrap up with that before we go into the main topic. So the first one here is from Mysterious Universe. And this one says, Joan Rivers' haunted New York City penthouse is up for sale. And this was written by Jocelyn LeBlanc on May the 16th. Says, an extravagant New York City penthouse that Joan Rivers lived in for over two decades is currently on the market for a whopping $38 million. The 5,200-square-foot penthouse has 11 rooms, which includes four bedrooms and four and a half bathrooms five wood-burning fireplaces, and two terraces. The penthouse sits on top of a private limestone sheathed mansion that was designed by architect Horace Trumbauer. There is also a private elevator entry hall that leads into a two-story gallery. After her death in 2014, the penthouse was sold for $28 million to a member of the Middle Eastern royal family, but is now back up for sale. While Rivers was living in the home, she claimed that she had several encounters with the ghost. When she appeared on the television show Celebrity Ghost Stories back in 2009, she stated that she invited a voodoo priestess into her home after she moved in to help her get rid of a malicious entity she named Mrs. Spencer. According to Rivers, the spirit was a former resident of the home. While it's not exactly clear who Mrs. Spencer actually was, it's very possible that this was Mrs. Alfred Nicholas Spencer, who was the niece of financier J.P. Morgan. The comedian noted that several of her neighbors had noticed ghostly figures dancing around in her ballroom and even walking down the grand staircase wearing evening outfits. She comes back and she just does things to people in the house, Rivers explained, adding that some of her eclectic or sorry, electric items wouldn't work while in the home. Even the dog didn't prefer being in the home. The neighbors also experienced strange activity, as one of them noticed that all of the cherubs on her ch chandelier were missing their heads. The voodoo priestess that she brought in performed a ceremony that took about an hour and a half. She cleansed the neighbors' apartments as well. Furthermore, when Rivers found an old picture of Mrs. Spencer, she hung it up in the lobby and put flowers out for the deceased woman. Interestingly, when she did those things, the paranormal activity stopped, and finally her dog seemed comfortable in the home. It's unclear whether or not the current owner experienced any unexplained events, but we know that Joan Rivers surely did according to her claims. If you love New York City, you wouldn't mind living in a spectacular penthouse that once was owned by a famous celebrity. You have $38 million to spend, and you have no issue with possibly sharing your space with a ghost, then this property may be the perfect investment. Pictures of the penthouse can be seen here and on the Realtors listing page. So, um, yeah, I do have one issue. I don't have the $38 million. So, again, if we've got any Russian oligarchs in the audience that want to buy it for me, then by all means. But, uh, yeah, it is interesting. And you do hear these stories throughout the years, as I say. And Joan Rivers was a very intelligent person. So if she experienced something, I'm sure there was something there. I don't know if it was necessarily a ghost, but I would argue that she definitely encountered something in that home. And it is interesting. We will try and keep an eye out to see who buys it next. Uh, here's our next article, which is from coasttocoastam.com. 
and this one is titled Watch, so this is a video. Massive mystery creature remains found on floor of Mediterranean. And this is from the 17th, so yesterday. And this is from Timbanol. A curious piece of footage from an underwater exploratory vehicle shows the massive remains of a mysterious sea creature that has yet to be identified. Paranormal researcher Deborah Hatswell reportedly received the video from an unnamed oil and gas industry worker back in 2017 and held onto the material until late last month when she posted it to YouTube. According to her source, the strange discovery occurred as a remote-operated vehicle was conducting a survey of the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea at a depth of approximately 2,700 feet. During its examination of the area, the submarine stumbled upon the puzzling remains, which appear to measure around 98 feet long and consist largely of very lengthy, lengthy set of vertebrae. In the video, the operator of the vehicle uses a remote-controlled claw to reach out to grasp a piece of the skeleton, but the segment disintegrates into dust as soon as the slightest bit of pressure is placed upon it. While one might suspect the remains are simply those of a whale, Hartswell dismiss dismisses that particular theory. This video was taken by professionals who work underwater in oceans all across the globe, she said. They know what whale bones are and come across them from time to time. To that end, she noted that the spine of a whale sports three blades which are spaced 120 degrees apart, which is incongruous with the skeleton in the video. Adding another layer of mystery to the creature, Hartswell indicated that the dimensions of the skeleton on the video does not fit with the usual size for any sea life in the area. For his part, Hartswell's source for the video said that the bones could be very ancient and observed that they look more like they belong to a serpent of some kind. Attempts by the paranormal researcher to connect the creature's remains to various types of marine life have so far fallen short, giving rise to speculation that perhaps the skeleton is that of something fantastic, such as a heretofore undiscovered sea serpent akin to the legendary Leviathan. More skeptical-minded individuals, however, have posited that the remains were those of a giant hammerhead shark. What's your take on the weird find? And there's a link in the show, notice, show notes if you want to watch the video yourself. I do find it pretty hilarious that they say that there's a 98-foot-long hammerhead shark skeleton. Um, yeah, last time I checked, there aren't any hammerhead sharks that big. Maybe in ancient times, but definitely not today that we know of, anyway. Now, folks, what are the odds? We've got two articles about hauntings, both in New York, but this one's in New York State, not in New York City. And this one is from Coast to Coast as well, and it's titled Puzzling Potential Paranormal Activity Reported in New York Home. A series of strange events unfolding in the home of a family in New York State has them wondering if their residence is haunted. Sharing her story on Facebook, Nikki Hoteling explained that the eerie activity began on Monday when she noticed that some balloons had been tightly tied around, a doorknob had inexplicably became untethered, and were floating around the house, seemingly with some agency of their own. Initially thinking that perhaps the kids were playing a prank on them, she started to have second thoughts when things got weirder on Wednesday evening. According to Hoteling, when their dishwasher finished its cycle that night, she left its door open so that the dishes could dry and proceeded to sit with her, sister, with her husband in the adjoining living room for approximately 45 minutes. 
certain that no one had entered the kitchen during that time, when she returned to the room, she was stunned to see that several cups, as well as a bowl, were sitting on the floor arranged in some kind of mysterious formation. Seen on the left in the image above, so there's some photos here, but basically there's some cups on the ground and then the bowls are stacked on top. It is physically impossible for one of the kids to have stacked the cup, she said, because of where we were sitting the entire time. They would have had to walk right past us. Hodling and her family did not have to wait very long for the next odd event, as she woke up on Friday morning to discover that all of her kitchen cabinets, which are secured with child locks, had been opened in the middle of the night, seen on the right in the image above, now fairly convinced that some kind of ghostly presence is behind the puzzling activity, the bewildered mom tells us that, so far I feel safe and it seems non-threatening. That said, the family have enlisted a reputable psychic medium who will be visiting the residence, which is located in the community of Gasport, on Tuesday evening to help me get some answers, possibly, and have them cleanse our home. Now, folks, I did go and find Miss Hodling's website, or sorry, not website, but Facebook page, and basically that's all the news. There's nothing more. She just has a general thank you to everyone for following and that she's been able to get in contact with some people who can hopefully answer the questions for them. So we'll see if anything else comes up, and I'll keep you posted. But um, the photos are pretty pretty interesting, all the cabinet doors being opened. And if they've got child locks on them, I don't know a lot about child locks, but if they have child locks on them, it would explain, you know, it, it would not explain what happened if the kids opened them. And even if the kids open the ones on the bottom, the ones on the top are adult height, so I don't see how the kids could have opened the three doors on the top. But anyway, like I say, there's a photo there on the Coast to Coast website where you can see them. It is interesting because basically all the cabinet drawers are pulled out, like the silverware drawers, and all of the cabinet doors are left open. Yeah, uh, but like she said, so far it doesn't seem to be anything dangerous, so we shall see if anything else comes of it. And I'll keep you posted. Now, folks, we're going to get into these UFO stories. And again, Dave, thanks for tipping me off. Now, the first one's from Coast to Coast. And it says, video 60 minutes explores UFOs. And again, there's a link in the article, so you can watch it from there. Or I've got the link on YouTube also in the show notes. But especially if you haven't been keeping up, I would strongly encourage you to go and check this out. So it says, Venerable News Program 60 Minutes devoted a significant portion of Sunday night's broadcast to exploring incidents of Navy pilots witnessing unidentified aerial phenomena and the U.S. government's recent acknowledgement of the issue. Amazingly, the nearly 15-minute long segment, which can be seen in its entirety above and is transcribed here, so they've also got a transcription, was actually the very first time the program has ever covered UFOs in its more than five decades on the air. The piece largely served as an explainer to the 60 Minutes audience, who may have been unaware of the remarkable series of UFO-related events that have been unfolding since the 2017 New York Times article that revealed a Pentagon program to study unidentified aerial phenomena. During the segment, reporter Bill Whitaker spoke to former military intelligence officer Lou Elizondo, and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Christopher Mellon, about their concerns regarding what they see as the government's unwillingness to take a critical look at the UAP issue 
and how they have been working to rectify that situation. Also interviewed were former Navy pilots Lieutenant Ryan Graves and Alec Dietrich, Alex Dietrich, sorry, as well as retired U.S. Navy pilot commander David Fravor. All three former pilots encountered their personal experiences witnessing unidentified aerial phenomena, with Graves making the eyebrow-raising statement that he saw UAPs every day for at least a couple of years. While UFO enthusiasts may have found most of the material in the segment to be a retread of information that has already been circulated in bits and pieces over the last three years, that's true, I did, the show undoubtedly brought a sizable portion of public up to the speed on the matter, which is something of a victory for those wishing for the subject to be taken more seriously. I 100% agree with that. On that note, one particularly telling aspect of the program was that unlike in the vast majority of instances wherein the mainstream media looks at UFOs, the phenomenon was given a sincere examination rather than being the subject of ridicule. Again, I thought they did a good job. Additionally, it is noteworthy that not once during the segment were the words alien or extraterrestrial uttered by anyone. On the contrary, while the possibility that UAPs could be otherworldly was somewhat alluded to, a scenario in which they are foreign craft was treated as equally plausible, and ultimately, the general message imparted by the piece was that not seriously examining the phenomena due to its decades of proverbial baggage leaves the United States vulnerable to whatever dangers these oddities may pose. This point was stressed by Senator Marco Rubio, who appeared during the piece and declared that anything that enters our airspace that's not supposed to be there is a threat. Again, 100% agree. Preaching to the choir, folks, we've been preaching this. People like me, who have been interested in this for 30, 35, 40, 50 years, all of us agree on that. The senator went on to call a process for analyzing the data, call for, from UAP reports by pilots and argued that there needs to be a place where this cataloged and consistently analyzed until we get some answers. Should next month's highly anticipated Pentagon report on UAPs indicate the need for greater understanding of the phenomenon, Rubio's proposed effort to unravel the UFO enigma may very well come to fruition. That said, as always with UFOs, one is wise to temper their expectations when it comes to finding a complete answer to the mystery, as the phenomenon has proven time and time again to be particularly adept at confounding even the best efforts to understand it. Very well written. I think that Tim Banal basically summed up my feelings. It was a very well done piece. I was surprised by the openness to discuss it. And although the words, things like, oh, you understand that this sounds crazy or bizarre were used, it was toned down. I thought they did a pretty good job. Now, one of the other interesting things in this segment was that one of the pilots, and I'm not sure which one, it was a female pilot, she's never talked about this publicly before, and she says in the piece, I never wanted to be on national TV, with no offense, but I just felt I owe it to people to know what we saw. And all of these pilots also said that if they would not have had a second pilot in their planes, usually they would not report on this when they got back to ship, because again, people would look at them as being crazy. So what are we kind of left with, with this going on? Could it be a foreign nation? I don't think so. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. 
but I don't think anyone is any more advanced than the U.S. in the world as far as as far as technology like this. Now, could it be a splinter breakoff group? Yeah. Could it be the U.S. testing things? Of course, it could be. It could be a lot of things. I do think that it's equally possible that it's another group. Now, when I say another group, I mean it doesn't just mean aliens or extraterrestrials. It could be another group on this Earth that's more advanced than we know of. So I don't mean China or Russia. I mean another group, a breakaway or splinter civilization or group. And probably in future, I'll go a bit more into depth on that. It's just something I haven't really been able to get in depth on the program about before. But basically, think of another civilization. Civilization to me isn't the right word. Another portion of the human civilization that's more advanced than the rest of us. And when I say the rest of us, I mean at least the rest of us in the public world. Who knows what the Black Ops and some of these different groups have. But you and I, Jane Doe or Johnny Sixpack, yeah, those kind of people, you and I. The ones that don't have fusion technology and anti-grav and all of the rest. Again, I do another thing that was said in this interview was that it was definitely picked up on as a heat signature and on radar. So there was something physically there. It wasn't just an illusion or somebody having psychosis as a pilot or whatever you want to call it. We'll see what happens in the next two weeks or so, purportedly when we're going to get this release. We'll just see what happens. I do find it interesting that more and more of this is coming out as we lead up to this. Again, I've been on the record. I've said it more than once. I think that when we get to that date, we're either going to get delayed and told, oh, we haven't had enough time, or potentially they're going to say, well, there's not a whole lot here. And I think a lot of this information may have been moved to private parties that you can't run FOIA re requests against. But we shall see. Again, I stay positive. I continue to grow. The rally beard, which has gotten quite sea captain-ish at this point, it's uh, pretty pretty big, pretty uh, pretty buff, the old uh, sea captain beard. And in fact, I struggle to eat a lot of things because I'm always getting a mouthful of hair. But I've only got a few more weeks to go and then I can trim it back. Hopefully, hopefully we've got some kind of information coming out in June. Now, I've got one more article here, which is also on this same topic kind of vein of discussions. So that one was sent to me by Dave from the old 77 and again our chapter president in Missouri. So thanks again, Dave. And this one comes from NBC Philadelphia. So that is 10 Philadelphia. And it says mysterious UFO disappears into ocean in newly leaked Navy video. And this is by Lindsay Lowe of today and it was published on the 17th. A dark object moves across the sky near a U.S. Navy stealth ship, and there is video of this as well on the website, before suddenly veering into the water and disappearing. That's what unfolds in a recently leaked video of an unidentified flying object spotted off the coast of San Diego. Documentary filmmaker Jeremy Corbell shared the footage of the mysterious spherical flying object on Instagram. The Pentagon later confirmed that the video, believed to be from 2019, was taken by U.S. Navy personnel. Whether this being is worldly or otherworldly, we don't know, said Corbell. It's just part of a much larger series of events we are going to be learning about. This is just the latest in a series of sightings of mysterious, unidentified flying objects. 
Last month, Corbell shared a video of another mysterious craft, shaped like an upside-down pyramid, flying near another U.S. Navy ship. In fact, pilots have been reporting sightings of what they call, uh, what the government calls, unidentified aerial phenomena for decades, with some events captured in leaked videos and others simply reported by pilots. There seems to be a lot of continuity there, sorry, continuity, and unfortunately we just haven't been paying attention, says Chris Mellon, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. What we are seeing are a number of distinct different things. Sometimes we're seeing a 50-foot object that can travel at hypersonic speeds and seemingly go into orbit or come down from altitudes about above potentially 100,000 feet. The latest footage is now being reviewed by a government task force, which will brief Congress on the findings next month. However, the details of this latest sighting, like others' sightings in the past, may remain classified. There is more, more that could be shared that will be shared with Congress for certain, but I don't see it coming to the public anytime soon, Mellon said. Yeah, so again, on that, I've heard from many Washington insiders, so not personally, but just from what I've gleaned from reading and listening elsewhere, that what Congress sees is much different than what you and I see. So think of what you and I are seeing as like the trailers for movies. So we get the 90-second or two-minute version, and what Congress is getting is much more like a, a uh, preview or premiere event where they get to see much better stuff and much more length. But again, I do find it interestingly that slowly this is getting leaked out. And also, like Dave has said many times to me and on the old 77, it is interesting that the Navy and the Pentagon are rushing out to say, oh yeah, this was filmed by Navy personnel. Whereas in the past, they never said anything like that. They just did the whole, we can neither firm nor confirm nor deny. So yeah, in interesting. Very, very interesting. And again, Dave, Thanks for sharing that with me. And again, folks, there's a link in the show notes if you want to go and watch the video. But just another excellent piece of video that's come out. So now we are going to transition into the main topic of tonight's episode. But again, this one has definitely got a UFO slant. And it's going to be a long episode, folks. So go away and get yourself a nice drink. Be it uh, a warm mug of something like a cup of tea or a coffee or whether it's an adult beverage or if it's some snacks, but you'll definitely want to settle down and listen because this is going to be a long segment about the fascinating 1946, well, starting in 46, but continuing on, and you'll see very soon as you listen to this episode. But anyway, the ghost rockets over Scandinavia, and again, not just Scandinavia, but you will soon find out what was going on over the skies of Europe for many years, and a very fascinating early UFO case. I hope you do enjoy. Holland welcomes another famous national leader, South Africa's Premier, Field Marshal Smuts. After being received by Queen Wilhelmina at the Royal Palace, the Field Marshal was accompanied to his car by Prince Bernard. Next day at Bacheren, the children had a surprise gift in the form of shoes given by the people of the Union. At Flushing, the tour continued with an inspection of the dikes. And 
last, but by no means least, a chat with the local people in the language that forms a common bond between the Netherlands and South Africa. Now you may be asking yourself, JT, I thought you said this was Scandinavian. And it is. But we have to take a little detour first. And quite a distant detour at that. Field Marshal Jan Schmutz, Prime Minister of South Africa, broadcast a speech on the BBC on the 29th of September, 1946. He talked about the prospects for peace in the post-war world, a subject on which he could claim some authority, since he had helped unify Anglophiles and Afrikaners after the Boer War, and was involved in the Paris Peace Conferences after both World War I and World War II. The speech was mainly about the United Nations, or as he quaintly called it, UNO, and the growing signs of friction between the former allies and the Security Council. And we all know how that turned out. Churchill had given his Iron Curtain speech in March, but one section is somewhat confusing for modern readers. The United States may not long continue to enjoy the sole secret of the atom bomb, and this and other no less deadly weapons will at no distant date be in the possession of other nations also. The flying bombs, now seen nightly in the West, are indications of what is going on behind the curtain. It is highly doubtful whether any new weapons, or indeed any mechanical inventions, could ever be relied on to remove the danger of war. A peaceful world order could only be safely based on a new spirit and outlook widely spread and actively practiced among the nations. Flying bombs seen nightly in the West. What flying bombs? Sputz was referring to reports which had been coming out of Sweden since May, and more recently from Denmark and Greece. Fast-moving objects, sometimes with wings, sometimes without, were seen flashing across the sky. Some had flames shooting out the rear. Others appeared to maneuver. Some of them crashed. Residents of Malmo reported that windows were broken when a rocket exploded over their town. They were sometimes even tracked on radar. A photo was taken of one. They were seen by military personnel as well as by ordinary people. An example, one of the mysterious bombs which in recent weeks have been passing across Sweden was seen last night by an officer of the Air Defense Department of the Defense Staff. He reports that the bomb looked like a fireball with a clear yellow flame passing an estimated height of between 1,500 and 3,000 feet and at a considerable but quite measurable speed. The term now given to these objects is ghost rockets. Suspicions immediately fell on the Russians, who had taken possession of the German missile research station at Pinamunda, along with many other scientists and equipment. This was where V-1 and V-2 development had taken place during the war. As the Manchester Guardian editorialized, no one has said who starts them, the ghost rockets, on their journey. But it does not need much imagination to see Russian engineers no doubt assisted by obedient German scientists operating from a research station on the Baltic coast. Russia, of course, could have found a more secret practice range, but she probably enjoys revealing a little of her plaything, just as America carefully lets us know at least enough about her bomb to hold it in respect. 
There was even a precedent. The Germans had test-fired many V-1s and V-2s over the Baltic, and one of the latter landed on Swedish territory. The resultant wreckage was of some use to Allied scientific intelligence in working out just how much of a threat the new rocket weapons could be. But as R.V. Jones, who was involved in both the wartime and more peripherally, the ghost rocket investigations pointed out, with hundreds of sightings being reported from Sweden alone, some proportion of the supposed rockets would have crashed and the wreckage would have been discovered. The Swedish military did look, even searching the bottom of a lake, which a winged missile had crashed into. Nothing was reportedly ever found. More on that later in the episode. Although in The Most Secret War, Jones relates an amusing episode about one fragment which initially denied an analysis, but which turned out to be a lump of coke, which is coal. In 1946, just one year after the Second World War ended, another wave of UFO sightings was witnessed, this time in Europe, over the Scandinavian countries, where they were called ghost rockets. In 2015, a revealing documentary hit the mainstream, titled Ghost Rockets, the film opened up a phenomenon that re residents of Sweden had experienced since the aftermath of the Second World War. The project, led by the chairman of UFO Sweden, Klaus Fahn, conducted extensive investigations into these strange sightings. Many hundreds of incidents of those ghost rockets occurred in the mid to late 1940s alone. Some reported even seeing these elongated rocket-shaped crafts entering various lakes and bodies of water. However, all efforts to find even a trace of debris, or some other indicator of their presence, was fruitless. In the climate of the Cold War, it seemed to governments of the West that the Soviet Union must be responsible. Research carried out after the fact on now-available Soviet archives suggests that this just isn't the case. As with the Phantom Airship scares a generation earlier, parallels can be found nearby in time and or space. As noted above, Ghost rockets were also reported from Denmark and Greece. Both of these countries were fairly close to the new Iron Curtain, so it wasn't too implausible to think that they too may be playing unwitting hosts to Soviet weapon tests. But then ghost rockets were also seen in Portugal, Belgium, Italy, and as far afield as Morocco. Except for Italy, much further away from the Soviet spear. Some of the ghost rockets were undoubtedly meteors, the Perseid meteor shower coincided with that August peak of sightings. The photo mentioned above looks a lot like a meteor, which I would agree with. Others may have been new and unfamiliar jet airplanes. Sweden received its first vampire jets from the UK in June. The British consul at Salonika thought what he saw was nothing more than a very bright light. But as usual, not everything can be explained this way. Going backwards in time to the early 1930s, so-called ghost flyers were seen, often in snowstorms in the northern parts of Sweden, Norway, and Finland. These aircraft were seen, and heard, mainly at night, sometimes flying at low level, but they carried no markings, and military searches found neither the ghost flyers nor the aerodrome they presumably operated from. Explanations at the time included Soviet or Japanese spies, alcohol smugglers, always a favorite here at the Paranormal Sun, or misperception and mass delusion. Soviet or even combined Soviet-German exercises are perhaps the most likely explanation, though no archival smoking gun has ever been found. And going forward a few decades, and into a different medium altogether, in the 1980s and 1990s, Swedish coastal waters were plagued by incursions from mystery submarines. 
This time, the witnesses were Swedish Navy personnel, and the submarines were detected with sonar. Again, the chief suspect was the Soviet Union, though NATO has been blamed more recently. And after the Whiskey on the Rocks incident of 1981, when a Soviet diesel sub ran aground near a major Swedish naval base, that's understandable. But even trained sonar operators make mistakes. One prominent incident in 1982 was, it seems, caused by a charter boat. Now back to 1946, and one of the most perplexing series of sightings to ever be recorded. As peace finally took hold of Europe for the first time in the 1940s, people were still in alert mode from years of fighting. In particular, the years of aerial bombardment heightened this alertness. Although Europe was, for the moment, largely at peace, a new Cold War was developing. The Communist Soviet Union literally walled off their part of Europe. They operated in complete secrecy from the evils of the West, something which made the West suspicious. Perhaps because of this, many of the initial sightings caused much panic in the populace. Many would think they were under attack from the Soviet Union as much as aliens from another world. In early 1946, numerous reports of anomalous, meteor-like phenomena, as well as seemingly reliable stories of impacts of apparent projectiles of some type, often in lakes, began to reach government and media circles in Scandinavia. Since some of the objects appeared to be missiles, complete with wings, intelligence services began to take note of the apparitions, which had been dubbed spook rockets or ghost rockets by the press. As noted below, the commander-in-chief of the Swedish Armed Forces, General Helge Jung, personally witnessed these rocket-like events on two separate occasions. The first recorded sighting took place on the 9th of June, 1946 over Helsinki, Finland. A strange light shot across the sky, accompanied by the sound of thunder, visible for around 10 minutes. The following evening, it appeared again. Only this time, it performed a complete turn in the air and then shot off in the direction it had arrived from. Like to see a meteor do that, my friends. On the 15th of July, a strange lighted object shot through the skies over Oslo, Norway. The incident occurred an hour before midnight and played out in front of multiple people. Witnesses quickly discounted that it might be natural phenomena due to the completely straight line the object went along. In less than a minute, it vanished from sight. The following evening, a strange light, or many strange lights, named ghost rockets again by the media, appeared in Rogaland, Norway. One witness stated they had seen the object over the Uskin River. Daily newspaper reports in Stockholm, London, and the U.S. in July and August 1946 ratcheted up fears that the Soviets were using the missiles, by then reported by several witnesses a day, as instruments in some sort of sinister political intimidation campaign, perhaps as an indirect reply to the U.S. crossroads nuclear tests in the Pacific on July 1st and July 25th, the first nuclear detonations since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Amid the growing furor, U.S. Naval Secretary James Forrestal happened to arrive in Stockholm from Berlin on July 16th for an official visit as part of an around-the-world trip following his observation of the Crossroads Able Test at Bikini. He had heard about what the Western Allies perceived as growing Soviet belligerence firsthand from General Lucius Clay in Germany, and while in Stockholm, may have been briefed on what was known about the suspected missile phenomena up to that point. By the next morning, he was playing golf with the charge 
and by dinner time was back to the routine with a formal gathering at which he discussed the Swedish parliamentary system and the single department of defense with a number of eminent Swedes. The Swedes, he learned, are obviously uneasy about the proximity and power of Russia, and still, despite their close geographical association, felt that they did not understand the Russians. That's from the Forrestal Diaries. The day Forrestal landed in Stockholm, the U.S. military attaché there sent an urgent, top-secret cable to the Pentagon describing what was believed to have occurred on that date. Swedish Army staff, studying 300 to 400 rocket incidents, reference your WAR 94001 of 12 July. They advise six phenomena have been observed to explode in the air, up to 50 points of impact observed. No evidence of radio control, and Army staff believes phenomena not radio-controlled. Defense Research Institute studying fragments, but key personnel on leave and report being delayed. Therefore, no large fragments have found, and small fragments appear to be non-ferrous. Afton Bladet states Russians have established base with staff of German scientists on Dago Island off Estonia. Staff checking basis of this report. Staff has rather tenuous hypothesis to support this as follows. Two circular rocket courses, both with radius of approximately 300 kilometers and centers respectively in the 56 to 57 north latitude and 19 to 20 east lat longitude quadrangle and the 61 to 62 north latitude, 21 to 22 east longitude quadrangle with rockets launched from Dago clockwise on both courses. This theory accounts for only portion of the incidents. Staff has not yet processed all reports. Some highly placed officials believe the phenomena are Russian rocket experiments, either purely for research or for war of nerves. Staff very nervous about release of info to United States and United Kingdom for fear Russians will cry West Bloc. This office urges greatest protection of this information. Detailed report by Next Pouch also later follow-up on ultimate findings. End. Action. General Chamberlain. Info. General Spatz. General Nordstad. General Orend. Forrestal departed for London on the 18th. British documents reflect the same sense of confused unease there. On the 16th, British official C.B. Jaram, in the British legation in Stockholm, cabled the Foreign Office to report that he had met with the Swedish Chief of Combined Intelligence, who confided that the Swedes were worried that the Soviets were behind the phenomena, but were unwilling to publicly so state, stressing the vital importance of utmost secrecy and delicacy of the position regarding other nations. And that's from the Public Records Office, quoted in David Clark and Andy Roberts' Out of the Shadows. Two days later, Squadron Leader Heath of the British Air Ministry and Major Malone of the N1MI-10 Artillery and Rocket Intelligence British War Office, flew to Stockholm and rushed to a ghost rocket briefing at the Swedish Air Ministry. As an indication of the sensitivity of the mission, they reported that they traveled in civilian clothes at Swedish request. Jaram reported in a secret telegram to the Foreign Office that Swedes stress need for utmost secrecy and object of mission is to be confined to selected members of British and Swedish general staffs only. Jaram added that the sense of the Swedes was that too many missiles have been observed and described to allow for explanation as meteorites, FO cables quoted in Clark and Roberts' book. Simultaneously, the Foreign Office issued a comprehensive summary of ghost rocket incidents to date, 
which was circulated widely within the British government and even reached Washington, where it became part of a thick classified summary on the phenomena that was addressed to senior officers of the Army Air Force, including Chief of Staff Carl Spatz and General Curtis LeMay. Yes, Bomber LeMay. The U.S. document contained a map showing certain suspected rocket impact locations and suspected launch sites, including Pinamunda, the Aland Islands, and Porkala, a coastal military base in Finland that had been ceded to the USSR. On July the 19th, as if in mockery of Forstall's visit to Sweden, one of the most important ghost rocket incidents occurred. At about 11.45 a.m., a gray, two-meter rocket-shaped device was seen by multiple witnesses to impact in Lake Kalmjarv in northern Sweden with a large water spout and explosion. Witnesses reported a gray, rocket-shaped object with wings crashing into the lake. One witness interviewed heard a thunderclap, possibly the object exploding. The next day, a Swedish military team under Lieutenant Carl Gosta Bartol arrived to search for debris. FOA engineers scanned for radioactivity. A raft was constructed to aid the search, which continued for two weeks. The lake bottom was charted and was found to be disturbed, but no hardware or debris was recovered despite a meticulous search. Bartol reported that, There are many indications that the Kolmjarv object disintegrated itself. The object was probably manufactured in a lightweight material, possibly a kind of magnesium alloy that would disintegrate easily and not give indications on our instruments. FOA report to GR Committee, Ghost Rocket Committee, September 1946. Svengaska Dagblaget, 22 July 46. Cited in another book. Now on July 21st, the Swedes reactivated their wartime radar network and began seeking radar confirmation of the visual reports. Amazingly, they did begin to receive anomalous tracks, but their erratic courses simply added to the mystery. On July the 25th, the Swedish paper Morgan Tidninigan reported that the Swedish military was now requesting public assistance with reports, which were to be sent to the Air Defense Division, Defense Staff Stockholm 90. It is possible that the flying bombs which are seen crossing Sweden both with the western direction and in a directly opposite direction, are taking a round trip over the country in order then to return to their place of origin. Foreign nations also took an increasing interest in these flying horses of the apocalypse and sent journalists to the country where the skies were now darkened by rockets. On August 14th, the New York Times reported that Undersecretary of State Dean Acheson said today he personally was very much interested in reports of rockets flying over Sweden, but that the Swedes had not sought any American advice on the subject. On the 22nd, the Times ran a page two article headlined, Russia said to have V-weapons in zone. Berlin 21st, Reuters, so this is that article, folks. Russian and German technicians are manufacturing new V-weapons in a number of former German arms plants that are working at the full level of their present capacity. Well-documented and extremely reliable information reaching Berlin from the Soviet occupation zone said today, evidence has been provided that the Russians are engaged in the production of heavy armaments, special jet aircraft, rocket fuels for V-weapons, and U-boat and torpedo components in at least 10 special factories in several parts of Russian-occupied Germany. Although the Russians do not at present permit Allied investigation of activity inside the closed 
guarded arms factories in the Russian-occupied areas, it has been learned that production of components of advanced V-weapons is going ahead in such factories as Siemens and Telefunken in Berlin, Niederschassenwerke at Wolfsleben, and the Klein Bodugen factory, all of which are subsidiaries of the big Bleichroder concern. In the Magdeburg plant of the Krupps Combine, the Russians are producing heavy armament equipment that is being shipped into Soviet Russia. It was stated, Special aircraft fuels for jet engines are being produced in the giant Luna oil plant near Marisburg in Saxony, but production is believed to be on a comparatively small scale. It was added, Factions within the Swedish, British, and American intelligence services were deeply concerned with the possibility that the rockets represented Stalin's saber-rattling, although there were equally deep divisions between those who took the reports at face value and those who discounted them. For instance, British technical intelligence expert R.V. Jones, who had been responsible for evaluating evidence on the World War II German-guided missile programs, was highly skeptical that the meteor-like phenomena were actually missiles. On the other hand, other experts, at surprisingly high levels, came to the opposite conclusion. Here we have another article from the AP on August the 13th, 1946. Still another rocket races over Sweden. Stockholm, August 13th. A ghost rocket was sighted moving across southern Sweden Monday night as an aroused Swedish public called for prompt action to determine the nature of the mysterious missiles and the country responsible for them. The latest missile was observed moving over southern Sweden from the northeast. The newspaper Doggins reported, the bomb was described as shaped like a giant torpedo and emitted a blinding light from the foremost part. It moved soundlessly and with great speed at low altitude, the report said. Following a bombardment of the missiles Sunday, the Swedish army dispatched experts to three points in central Sweden where the unidentified rockets crashed last night. Public indignation and the bitter comment of the press indicated that the government may be forced to take determined steps to clear up the situation. Informed sources said government officials were watching developments closely and awaiting supplementary evidence upon which to base the possible diplomatic protests. Unconfirmed rumors on the source of the missiles said the Russians were experimenting with rockets and flying bombs. A spokesman for the Swedish defense staff said it appears that Almost all the people throughout Sweden have been seized by a real ghost bomb psychosis. He added that many reports were undoubtedly pure flights of imagination. Many who told about bomb crashes are even unable to point out the exact place, and therefore we found it useless to start investigation to find the remains, he said. He did not, however, deny the phenomena were rockets and not meteors, as some observers had first claimed. On the August the 20th of 1946, the New York Times reported that two U.S. experts on aerial warfare, aviation legend and national hero General Jimmy Doolittle and General David Sarnoff, president of RCA, arrived in Stockholm, ostensibly on private business and independent of each other. The official explanation was that Doolittle, who was now vice president of the Shell Oil Company, was inspecting Shell branch offices in Europe, while Sarnoff, a former member of General Dwight D. Eisenhower's London staff was studying the market for radio equipment. However, unofficially and secretly, the two had been sent by Lieutenant General Hoyt Vandenberg, the director of the Central Intelligence Group 
to investigate the ghost rocket situation. The Times story indicated that the chief of the Swedish defense staff made no secret that he was extremely interested in asking the two generals advice, and if possible, would place all available reports before them. Sarnoff was later quoted by the New York Times on September 30th saying that he was convinced that the ghost bombs are no myth, but real missiles. On August 22nd, Vandenberg wrote a top-secret memo to President Truman, perhaps based in part on information from Doolittle and Sarnoff. The following is this official U.S. file on the ghost rocket phenomena from August 1946 that includes a top-secret memo to President Harry Truman from Army Air Force Lieutenant General Hoyt Vandenberg, director of the Central Intelligence Group, stating that the weight of evidence pointed to Soviet-occupied missile test facility at Pinamunda, Germany, as the origin of the mystery missiles. Vandenberg also passed along rumors that a Soviet ship in the Baltic was providing radio guidance correction for the missiles. The CIG speculated that the missiles were being flown primarily by experimental, sorry, for experimental purposes, aimed for the Gulf of Bothynia, and did not overfly Swedish territory specifically for intimidation. Although, said Vandenberg, that was probably a secondary consideration. Pinamunda, as far as most sources indicate, was at that time still devastated and inactive, apparently far from capable of launching super-sophisticated cruise missiles on provocation overflights of the Scandinavian countries. Now here is that file. Memorandum for the President. The attached report on ghost rockets received from the National Intelligence Authority is forwarded for your information. William D. Leahy. Memorandum for the President, Case 124. Top Secret Memorandum, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the President, 23 August 1946, with enclosures. Memorandum from the President, Admiral Leahy Files. Memorandum for the President. Since preparations of our original memorandum, dated 1 August 1946, on the subject of ghost rockets over Scandinavia, additional intelligence indicates that the formerly tentative conclusions should be somewhat modified. 1. The weight of evidence now points to Pinamunda rather than the Gulf of Finland as the probable launching site of most of these rockets. A. While it originally believed that the German installations at Pinamunda had been dismantled and shipped to the USSR, General Mallory now reports that Pinamunda is operational. B. The U.S. military attaché in Moscow has reported that a key Swedish air officer stated that, on the basis of Swedish radar course plotting, most of the launchings have been identified with the Pinamunda area. C. The SSU course indicates that a Soviet ship is reporting by radio to share stations on the passage of these missiles from Pinamunda over the North Baltic. D. The Leopoldville radio reported in July that the Soviets were warning shipping against passage through certain parts of the Baltic and were threatening the death penalty to anyone who might disclose the phenomena which they saw. 2. On the basis of the above evidence, it seems probable that the USSR is carrying out large-scale guided missile tests around the Baltic, in which most of the missiles are launched from the Pinamunda area and transverse Sweden towards the Gulf of Bothnia. 3. 
It is the belief of the CIG that scientific experimentation is the primary Soviet objective and that political considerations, although thoroughly appreciated, are secondary. In view of transportation difficulties, it would seem logical for the Soviets to enter their experimental program around Pinamunda, where manufacturing facilities, materials, and German personnel would be close at hand, rather than to set up new installations in Russia. B. There have been several foreign estimates that only these rockets, which were off course presumably through functional failure, land in Sweden. Hoyt S. Vandenberg, Lieutenant General, U.S. Air Force. 1. Since 15 May, there have been sensational press reports of ghost rockets seen passing over points in Sweden. On 10 July, two such rockets were reported to have fallen in Norway. The Swedish and Norwegian governments have now imposed a news blackout with reports on the subject. 2. Official sources, principally in military available at Stockholm, have confirmed these reports and obtained additional but inconclusive information. Although 10 such missiles have fallen within Sweden, the Swedish general staff has as yet been unable to reach firm conclusions on the basis of the fragments recovered. 3. From the information presently available, the Director of Intelligence has concluded that a. The missiles are of the jet-propelled type rather than rockets. b. They contain only small demolition charges for self-destruction rather than a warhead. c. They outrange the V-1. This result could be achieved by construction from light, non-ferrous materials and by substitution of additional fuel for the heavy warhead. It could also be achieved by the use of a tube jet engine such as the Germans were developing at the close of the war. German scientists in the Soviet employ are capable of completing this development and the characteristic noiselessness reported supports the supposition of its use. Four. Their course is apparently controlled either by radio or preset controls. Turns in circular courses have been indicated. A. The launching from some Soviet control point in the vicinity of the Gulf of Finland is probable, since the interior of the USSR affords areas suitable for extensive and unmolested experimentation. The launching of these missiles over Scandinavia must be a deliberate demonstration for political effort. In this, the Soviet objectives might be A intimidation of Sweden and Norway by a demonstration of their vulnerability to attack with such missiles, b. intimidation of Great Britain by demonstration of the vulnerability of the UK to such attack from continental areas which the Soviets now control or are capable of seizing, or c. intimidation of the United States by demonstration of Soviet capabilities for the scientific development of new weapons. For General Vandenberg, E.E. E. Wright, Colonel, GSC, executive to the director. So folks, the important thing here is that you can see the Swedes are taking this quite seriously. The U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence services are taking this quite seriously. Just keep that in mind next time somebody tells you all these sightings are mass paranoia. One of the most interesting aspects of the ghost rocket affair is the controversy it generated within Western military intelligence establishments. While Vandenberg's CIG may have feigned a certain degree of confidence that the objects actually were Soviet experimental missiles, no hard evidence was forthcoming from the Swedes and the U.S. and British technical intelligence representatives 
were put in the position of secretly competing to wheedle data out of their uncommunicative Swedish counterparts, all against the daily media cacophony about newly reported sightings. The senior U.S. military attaché in Stockholm at the time, Army Air Force Major General Alfred Kessler, sent a secret cable to the Pentagon on August 24th that contradicted Vandenberg's CIG report by shrewdly theorizing that the rocket rumors were an unintentional hoax on the part of the Swedish military, i.e. that the Swedes, oversensitized to missile reports by World War II experiences, had frightened themselves into believing that the new objects, which in his opinion were really a variety of mundane events, actually were Soviet missiles, and that this hoax developed naturally but was exploited by Swedish defense staff by implication and lack of frankness, possibly in the interest of raising the defense budget and to alert West against East. If rockets or hoax rapidity of deteriorations of West-East relations now put Swedes in dangerous position in which they could be charged with contributing to breakdown in great power relations, Swedish unofficial release from highly placed members of the defense staff or air force have stated flatly that rockets with proved origin in Russian territory have been established over Sweden. Further, defense staff, source 69, unofficially told SSU officer this legation that Sweden has radar tracks proving existence of rockets over Sweden with USSR origin. If unofficial, highly placed sources now hedge and decoy rocket scare, believe hoax theory plausible. If they do not, possibly Sweden will try to ride two horses, continuing to contribute to deterioration of great power relations to get Russian bear off Sweden's neck. But being ready to repudiate unofficial spokesmen and point to clean record if Sweden accused as troublemaker, hoax theory conceived jointly by this and naval attaché office, discrepancy between official denials, rocket evidence, and unofficial statements, but not proof that rocket evidence exists, points to possibility of hoax. If Swedes have rocket evidence, they need not fear accusation as to troublemaker and official denials of evidence or discredit to officialdom without apparent advantage. If Swedes want to tell us about real rockets, easiest way would be to use official contacts above submitted as worthy of consideration at this time. This office continues to reserve judgment pending receipt of factual evidence, every effort being continued to obtain same. Very soon, sightings spread to other European countries, including Italy, Greece, France, Switzerland, Belgium, and the Netherlands, then eventually tapered off in the late summer of 1946. How did the Soviets react to the ghost rocket Führer? Not long after the German surrender in 1945, the Soviets had sent a Special Technical Commission, Russian abbreviation OTK, on rocket exploitation to the eastern zone of Germany, under great secrecy, to set up a recovery effort. On September 8, 1945, Sergei Korolov flew to Berlin to become deputy head of OTK. Rocket engine designer Glushko followed soon after. The rocket exploitation activity set up by OTK at Bleichenrode was named Institute Rob. By mid-September, Helmut Grotrup arrived at Institute Rob as the senior former Pinamunda rocket scientist under Soviet control. Grotrup had been a senior deputy in guidance and control group under Ernst Steinhoff. 
the U.S. had already reached many of the German rocket facilities and retrieved as much equipment as possible prior to Soviet occupation, and most of the top former Nazi rocket technicians had gone over to the Western Allies. But the Russians were able to compile a great deal of documentation and hardware, which was to prove priceless to their early post-war rocket development projects. The Soviets were certainly aware that they were being accused by much of the Western press, if not openly by Western governments, of being responsible for the 1946 missile overflights, and did react in their own press to a limited extent. On August 18th, the Russians held the largest air show since World War II at Tushino Airfield and unveiled several new jet and rocket-powered aircraft, possibly exacerbating the fears of those in the West who believed the Soviets were behind the ghost rockets, as seen by the CIG report issued soon afterwards. The August 21st Reuters story that alleged that the V-weapon plants in the Soviet zone of Germany were working at full capacity to build missiles and jet aircraft, and mentioning Bleach and Road by name, seemed to have particularly annoyed the Russians. And on October 3rd, the Moscow New Times blasted rumors about production of mysterious kinds of weapons, supposedly being manufactured in Soviet zone of Germany. The Reuters story was the particular target of the New Times article, which charged that the source of the information in Reuters' story were mythical representatives of the East German Socialist Unity Party. In other words, they're saying that Reuters made it up. On October the 11th, British Ambassador to Poland, Cavendish Bentick, Victor Frederick William Cavendish Bentick, 9th Duke of Portland, wartime chairman of MI6's Joint Intelligence Committee, sent a coded cable to the Foreign Office asking that the Pinamunda region be placed under scrutiny, at least as to whether the area actually was closed to non-Soviet personnel. I am informed that the Soviet Army have an experimental station in the area between Dirlau, or Rugenwald, and Uska, Stolpmunde, and that only Soviet military personnel with special permits are allowed in this area. It has been suggested to me that rockets or flying bombs seen over Sweden were launched from this station. I seem to remember that during the war the Germans had an experimental station for the V-1 and or V-2 at Stolpmunde. Please find out as soon as possible whether the above-mentioned area is in fact forbidden to all except the Soviet personnel and try to obtain discreetly any further information that you can. When in Stettin, on October 13th, I will request Mr. Vice Council Walters to take similar action. Please show this telegram to Captain Petrie and Captain Denham, Naval Attaché Stockholm, on their arrival. Foreign Office, please pass to MI-10 War Office. Repeated to Stockholm under Foreign Office number 729. Copies sent to MI-10 War Office. On October 28, 1946, in an intriguing open confirmation of Cavendish Bentwick's interest in the Stolpmunde region, the major Swedish newspaper, Aftenbladent, published claims that visiting East Germans were describing actual sightings of ghost rocket launches. It seems possible that such reports had been received by the Swedes since the early days of the phenomenon, leading to the otherwise hard-to-understand Swedish belief that the sightings over Scandinavia actually were missiles and drawing intelligence attention to specific alleged launch sites. Did Western inquisitiveness concerning Pinamunda because of the ghost rockets raise Soviet worries to the point that retaining the Grotentrub team at Institute Rob in Germany was no longer considered safe? On October 23rd, just days after Cavendish Bentick's cable, the Grotenrupp German rocket team 
was rounded up by its Soviet host at Bleichenrode and evacuated from Germany to the USSR in an overnight urgent mission. 20,000 technical experts and workers were taken along with factories and equipment. Eventually, the Nordhausen V2 production line, rocket engine production and test facilities, guidance and tracking equipment factories, and all rocket-related ancillaries were moved to the USSR. Some support for the idea that the ghost rockets may have played a part in increasing Western noisiness and Soviet vigilance comes from intelligence historian Stephen Dorill, writing in his book, MI6 Inside the Covert World of Her Majesty's Secret Intelligence Service, Dorill notes that, by the summer of 1946, MI6 established that there were 12,000 skilled scientists and technicians available in the Western zones, of which 2,900 were regarded as eminent, with reliable reports that newly opened Soviet research institutes were recruiting Germans, MI6 warned that the result of this intake in Germans will be very greatly to speed up Russia's industrialization plans and to contribute substantially to Russian war potential. MI6's proposed solution was drastic. 1,000 scientists in the British zone would be quarantined for up to two years and rehabilitated by compulsory training for their occupations. Turning this down as unworkable, intelligence officers in the Control Commission suggested that 400 should be removed as soon as possible from Germany, whether they are willing to go or not. Alarmed by the MI6 reports, the deputy chiefs of staff were also concerned that Britain was suffering an acute shortage of scientists and technicians in all fields. They recommended that more German scientists be brought into Britain in a more efficient manner. In an effort to deny their talents to the Soviets, a list of targeted scientists employed in aviation and missile design, most of whom had already been working for more than a year for the British in Germany, was compiled by British intelligence. The chiefs were also worried by reports from Sweden of Soviet rocket tests in the Baltic. In response, MI6 teams of exile agents were sent into the Soviet orbit tasked to look for evidence of Russian atomic energy and rocket developments. The rocket reports, however, turned out to be false, and Dr. R.V. Jones was able to show that the alleged tests were, in fact, meteorites. MI6 officers in Germany were also tasked with recruiting scientists from the Russian zone. They were convinced that there is an opportunity now to obtain high-grade intelligence from these men, which will enable us to build up an almost complete picture of Russian scientific and technical activities in Germany and make it possible to forecast more accurately than we can at present, the progress of Russian developments of weapons during future years. It was a naive conviction, but during December 1946, as part of the effort to deny Russians certain scientists who were listed on account of their scientific or technical eminence in certain warlike subjects, British intelligence launched the highly secret Operation Matchbox, which planned the escape of German scientists from the Soviet zone. The Enemy Personnel Exploitation Section of FIAT was responsible for targeting men who had worked on engines for submarines, a subject that particularly interested the British, and research chemists for IG Farben. So in other words, folks, we all know about Project Paperclip. Project Matchbox was the British equivalent, and basically they were a bit spooked by these ghost rocket sightings, thought that the Russians were well ahead of the British and Americans, and so their answer was to recruit even more ex-Nazi scientists into the fold, 
and get as many into the UK as quickly as possible. So, um, yeah, well, we all know how that ended up in the US anyway. It ended up with NASA. And if you don't believe me, folks, go and look at some of the preeminent minds in NASA in the early years. And the vast majority of them were ex-Nazi party members. Kurt Debus, Eberhard Rees, Arthur Rudolph, Walter Dornberger, Ernst Giesler, and who can forget, Werner von Braun. He's been painted for so many years as a harmless German scientist who was under pressure by the Nazi party to do things, therefore he did some unscrupulous things. But let's not forget that Werner von Braun was an SS member and one of Hitler's favorites. Oh, did I forget to mention that he used to personally go to the concentration camps to pick out his slave labor? Yeah, absolutely harmless. Now, since the ghost rockets were never firmly pinned on the Soviets, interest in the phenomenon continued for years. Some sightings and unusual radar trackings were made in early 1947. And by that July, the U.S. Navy conducted electronic intelligence, or ELINT, ferret flights near Pinamunda as part of Operation Passionate, possibly the earliest post-World War II U.S. reconnaissance mission on the perimeter of the Soviet Union. Ferret Squadron VP-26, Detachment 214, flying modified PBY privateers, reported that it had obtained intercepts of signals from the former German installation, which they interpreted as radar emissions and directional guidance beams similar to those used during World War II for certain German missile experiments. On July 13, 1947, in the wake of a phenomenal outbreak of flying object sightings in the U.S., these apparent confirmations of Soviet missile activity in the Baltic the previous year leaked to the press, and respected journalists Joseph and Stuart Alsop claimed that it had been established beyond doubt that the objects reported over Sweden had actually been versions of the German A-9 winged guide missile that had been developed in a joint German-Soviet program. The Berlin crisis the following year provoked more concern about the location and nature of Soviet installations in the Baltic. On August 24, 1948, Colonel J.E. Mallory of the U.S. Air Force Directorate of Intelligence's Requirements Division, Reconnaissance Branch, reported that special cameras had been loaned to the Swedish Air Force, which had recently conducted reconnaissance flights over the eastern Baltic islands of Dago and Osel, Hiuma and Sarima, adjacent to Estonia, the supposed launch sites of some of the mystery missiles. These islands lie roughly 150 miles east of Stockholm and would have been logical sites for launch facilities for V-1-class cruise missiles. Based on comments made in top-secret Air Force intelligence memo dated August 1949, the Swedish reconnaissance missions actually had discovered V-1, Cherimoy 10X, the Soviet V-1 copy, launch sites, and associated anti-aircraft batteries during the covert missions over these islands. And we have another top-secret document here. Top Secret, Department of the Air Force, Headquarters, United States Air Force, Washington, 24 August, 1948, AFOIRRC, Memorandum for Executive Air Intel, Requirements Division. Subject, Supplement to Daily Activity, 24 August, 1948. 1. It has been noted in cable brief that Sweden Armed Force CNC General Jung saw a aerial explosion considered to be some form of guided missile originating from Estonian islands, possibly Dago or Osel, 
A point of interest lies in the fact that recent word has been received from our attaché in Stockholm of a reconnaissance sortie accomplished over Ossel and the stated with the stated intention of further aerial reconnaissance there. The Swedish reports have mentioned civilian evacuation on the western coast of the above islands. 2. The Swedish aerial reconnaissance stems from an arrangement which was made with the Directorate of Intelligence for the loan of long focal-length cameras to the Swedes. 3. General Jung has a keen interest in the products of reconnaissance in a personal as well as official way. He has, as a personal friend, the head of the section of the General Staff of Defense, which is charged with covert risk reconnaissance. General Jung's sister-in-law holds a key position in that section. It is believed that the photographs of the area will be received in the near future. Lieutenant Colonel Fuller, 2376. Signed by J.E. Mallory, Colonel, U.S. Air Force, Chief Reconnaissance Branch. U.S. intelligence forces continued to issue reports blaming the ghost rockets on Soviet experiments well into 1948. The October issue of the classified, official Pentagon publication Air Intelligence Digest, which featured a photo of Soviet long-range Air Force Chief Marshal Alexander Golanov on its cover, contained an article titled Fires in the Sky, which reported that an increase in the number of incidents over Sweden during summer may have been connected with Soviet guided missile tests in the Lake Selinger area, 57 north, 33 east, or along the Baltic coast of Estonia. About 32 launching sites reportedly exist in areas fronting on the Baltic Sea. Swedish sources claim to have confirmed the existence of three such sites. Recurrence of so-called rocket incidents over Sweden is important in view of the reported move of Pinamunda launching facilities to locations in the USSR. Earlier, the greatest number of incidents in Scandinavia occurred in 1946, when the Pinamunda facilities reportedly were being used in trial launchings of German World War II missiles, then being manufactured in the Soviet zone of Germany. Sightings of rockets over Scandinavia ceased with the reported removal of Pinamunda facilities, but began again almost coincidentally with the reported establishment of test facilities in the USSR. Any missiles being test-fired by the Soviets in areas such as the Baltic probably are slightly improved versions of German World War II types, and those which may be under development of installations in the interior regions of the USSR, possibly one or more advanced types. Secret. The German missile engineers under Soviet control had in fact been moved to Lake Seliger by that time. But were the Soviets really responsible for the ghost rocket phenomena? Even assuming that most of the reports were noise, was there any signal present? While it is not possible that even a sizable portion of the two numerous reports could have been missiles, was even one of the overflights or alleged impacts an actual Soviet V-1-class missile that went astray, either after launch from the Pinamunda region, the Estonian islands, or from an airplane over the Baltic? British and U.S. intelligence documents from 1946 make it clear that the Swedish government was acutely sensitive to the problem of angering the Soviets by publicizing such information, and it seems possible that it would have suppressed hard evidence at the time. But would such a cover-up have endured for decades? Up to this point, the ghost rocket affair could be viewed as just an intriguing mystery from the early formative days of the Cold War, when the two sides were growing more and more mistrustful, and the West was unsure of Soviet motives and lacked means of judging the links to which Stalin would go to attain them. 
but the story takes a turn that warps it out of the realm of acceptable conventional military history. By 1948, stimulated by the details of the eyewitness accounts of the strange behavior of many of the alleged missiles, another theory was beginning to develop. Swedish intelligence intimated that, as time passed, it had begun to mull over the possibility that the ghost rockets were interplanetary vehicles of some type. Due to the alleged lack of hardware from missile impacts and the unlikelihood that the Soviets would have conducted extremely risky and apparently purposeless missile overflights of Scandinavia for more than two years, the interplanetary theory was conspicuously absent from intelligence comments on the ghost rockets in 1946. But the idea would grow and take hold as more and more unusual reports were collected in the ensuing months. It was the bridge of a tenacious controversy. Analysts with a skeptical attitude might view this theory as a way for the Swedish military to squirm out of the corner it had seemingly painted itself into. Based on Sweden's political orientation during World War II, when it had tried to avoid aligning with either Hitler or the Allies, it seemed difficult to visualize the Swedish government making strong protests to Stalin in 1946, even if indisputable evidence, missile impacts, had been obtained. If Sweden had in fact recovered verified debris from one or more stray Russian missiles, and the government considered this too dangerous to reveal, it may have believed that floating rumors of extraterrestrial origin might have clouded the issue of the magnitude of its concern over more local threats. On the other hand, if no missile evidence existed, the numerous highly unusual reports were still hard to swallow as being caused by mundane phenomena, such as meteors, since many of the objects reportedly did not conform to meteor behavior. If the, if the witness testimony, including that of senior members of the Swedish military, was to be accepted, some other explanation was necessary. The document cited above demonstrates that the Swedish interplanetary theory reinforced similar thinking within U.S. Air Force intelligence just at the time when Project Signs' top-secret UFO estimate was circulating through the American Intelligence Division. Sign's estimate apparently attempted to make the same case as the Swedes, that ongoing reports of rocket-like anomalous phenomena were accurate accounts of real vehicles that could not be the products of known technologies. Here is a November 1948 U.S. Air Force Air Intelligence Division Offensive Branch, OIOB, the department responsible for compiling data on the Soviet Air Order of Battle, document informing U.S. Air Force Europe of emerging Swedish theory that the ghost rockets may be extraterrestrial vehicles, and asks, what are your reactions? Indeed, what are your reactions? USAFE-14, TT-1524, Top Secret, 4 November, 1948, from 0108. For some time, we have been concerned by the recurring reports on flying saucers. They periodically continue to crop up, during the last week, one was observed hovering over Newbyberg Air Base for about 30 minutes. They have been reported by so many sources and from such a variety of places that we are convinced that they cannot be disregarded and must be explained on some basis, which is perhaps slightly beyond the scope of our present intelligence thinking. When officers of this directorate recently visited the Swedish Air Intelligence Service, this question was put to the Swedes. Their answer was that, some reliable and fully technically qualified people have reached the conclusion that these phenomena are obviously the result of a high technical skill 
which cannot be credited to any presently known culture on Earth. Did you hear that? I'll repeat. These phenomena are obviously the result of high technical skill which cannot be credited to any presently known culture on Earth. They are therefore assuming that these objects originate from some previously unknown or unidentified technology, possibly from outside of the Earth. One of these objects was observed by a Swedish technical expert near his home on the edge of a lake. The object crashed or landed in the lake, and he carefully noted its azimuth from his point of observation. Swedish intelligence was sufficiently confident in his observation that a naval salvage team was sent to the lake. Operations were underway during the visit of the U.S. Air Force's officers. Divers had discovered a previously uncharted crater on the floor of the lake. No further information is available, but we have been promised knowledge of the results. In their opinion, the observation was reliable, and they believe that the depression on the floor of the lake, which did not appear on current hydrographic charts, was in fact caused by a flying saucer. Although accepting this theory of the origin of these objects poses a whole new group of questions and puts much of our thinking in a changed light, we are inclined not to discredit entirely this somewhat spectacular theory. Meantime, keeping an open mind on the subject. What are your reactions? Top secret. End of USAFE item 14. An additional point might be made. It appears that if some of the ghost rockets incidents actually did involve observations of Soviet-launched missiles, a precedent was established very early on in the Cold War era for accidentally masking of missile activity as UFO incidents. Much later in the history of Soviet clandestine missile activity, such masking seems to have become a planned policy. And with this, the ghost rockets were just a footnote in history due to national paranoia over Cold War jitters, right? Right? Well, no. Many people do not realize that this was far from the end of the story. Sightings of the ghost rockets would continue throughout the decades, with no adequate explanation forthcoming. Although incidents were reported throughout Scandinavia, the vast majority appeared to take place over Swedish airspace. In response to the wave of sightings, the Swedish government formed a dedicated com committee to investigate the phenomena. Strangely, several months after these investigations began, Swedish newspapers began to stop printing reports of such sightings. Some suspected that this was at the behest of the Ghost Rockets Committee Group. Reports of these incidents in Sweden still regularly appear, however, in other European countries' media. It was around this time that the official Swedish government stance on the mystery sightings was that they were Russian. This is a notion that is very likely incorrect, for reasons we have already talked about and we will look at again very soon. Liz and Bo Berg's Story In the summer of 1980, while walking along the banks of Lake Namajur, Liz and Bo Berg were witnesses to a strange rocket-shaped craft. The metallic object flew over their heads before it made a sudden U-turn and headed straight for them. Before it reached their location, however, it descended into the water, disappearing from their sight. The sound of the craft caught their attention first, Lisberg describing it as a whooshing sound that made her think a Soviet cruise missile was overhead. That was until they saw it stop and perform a 180-degree turn. The pair made a report of the sighting to the military, who immediately came out to interview them. They were, however, seemingly concerned with asking the pair the same questions over and over again. What color was the object? Where exactly was the pair when the incident took place? 
Did they hear any particular noise? Boberg stated later that he got the impression they would not receive any information on exactly what they saw. What's more, their interviewers acted as if it were a debriefing session as opposed to merely taking their report. As he suspected, Bo and Lisberg have not heard anything about what they witnessed that afternoon. As they would find out years later, they were just two of many people who had witnessed very similar objects. In 1984, four years after the sightings of the Bergs, Sweden officially de declassified their ghost rocket files. Upon examination by interested UFO investigators, over 1,500 reports were made available, all locked away within these files since the sightings began just after World War II. Many of these files still have reports to follow up, where possible, so it might still be the case that new evidence could still come to light. The Swedish Air Force officer who led the search on July 19, 1946, into the lake in Sweden, Carl Bartol, was interviewed in 1984. He said their investigation suggested the object largely disintegrated in flight. He speculated that the object may have been made of material designed to disintegrate, the military concluding that the object was probably manufactured of a lightweight material, possibly a kind of magnesium alloy. Bartol insisted that what people saw were real, physical objects. Immediately after his investigation in 1946, Bartol submitted a report in which he similarly stated that the bottom of the lake had been disturbed but nothing found and that there are many indications that the object disintegrated itself. The object was probably manufactured in lightweight material, possibly a kind of magnesium alloy that would disintegrate easily and not give indications on our instruments. On August 11, 1946, more than 300 reports of strange sightings were observed in just the Stockholm area alone. Soon the Swedish newspapers started censoring most reports of ghost rockets. However, reports continued to come in from other Scandinavian countries, like Norway, which would provide some of the best reports. It is important to note that the Swedish military was given a unique perspective on reports of stray experimental missiles by its experience with them during World War II. Between 1943 and the surrender of Nazi Germany, several V-1 cruise missiles and V-2 ballistic missiles launched on test missions from Pinamunda, the German rocket installation on the Baltic coast, had gone off course and crashed in Swedish territory. These vehicles had been carefully analyzed by Swedish and Allied intelligence teams who were desperate to learn the secrets of the advanced weapons. When the first reports of missile-like luminous phenomena began to come in in early 1946, the same Swedish technical intelligence personnel who had studied the German weapons began to compile reports and look for patterns that might give a clue to the nature of the bizarre objects. Because again, folks, you're talking about something that happened a year after they had been doing this, so it's not like it was 20 years later and these people had moved on or passed away or anything. The scientists were right there, ready to go. By July 1946, enough persuasive reports of low-altitude rocket-like phenomena had been received that the FOA, the Swedish Defense Research Agency, had produced several scale models of the more advanced late-war German missiles and used them to create a photo montage that simulated these missiles in flight. The photo was highly unrealistic. The V-2 and the A-4, a misnomer for the A-9 wing version of the, of the V-2, were long-ranged, supersonic, high-altitude missiles that would never be seen flying along at sea level like airplanes. 
although the A-9 would be visible in the last phases of its wingborne glide towards its target. And the Wasserfall and Rheintalker R-1 were both short-range anti-aircraft weapons, but it might have been intended to provide a, short, a sort of identikit reference to help establish some credible data regarding the configuration of the reported objects. More importantly, each instance of an apparent ghost rocket impact was carefully investigated by military search parties who recovered suspected rocket debris and subjected it to technical analysis. By the end of 1946, the Special Ghost Rocket Committee of the Swedish Defense Staff had examined some 100 reports of rocket impacts. Of the total of 973 ghost rocket reports that had been received by the defense staff to November 29, 1946, 225 were considered observations of real physical objects, and everyone had been seen in daylight hours. It was difficult to dismiss the numerous reports as being caused by sightings of ordinary meteors, particularly because some of the objects were seen for tens of seconds and had intermittent flame trails that witnesses compared to the exhaust flames from V-1 cruise missiles. Since it was known that many of the objects had vanished in loud, smoky explosions just before striking the ground, and no identifiable hardware was recovered at the sites, the Swedish Ghost Rocket Committee began to suspect that the mystery missiles were constructed of some special type of light alloy, possibly magnesium, that would disintegrate or burn up prior to impact. This concept would become a crucial theme of the early post-World War II UFO phenomena. On December 3, 1946, a memo was drafted for the Swedish Ghost Rocket Committee stating, Nearly 100 impacts have been reported, and 30 pieces of debris have been received, received and examined by FOA, later said to be meteorite fragments. Of the nearly 1,000 reports that had been received by the Swedish defense staff on November 29th, just again to reiterate, 225 were considered observations of real, physical objects, and everyone had been seen in broad daylight. So again, folks, something doesn't jive here. Because we're told multiple times in these communiques, etc., there's nothing there, there's no wreckage. But yet we've got this memo from the Swedish Ghost Rocket Committee saying that they've got 30 different pieces of debris. Interesting, isn't it? Sounds like a bit of misdirection to me. Now, as for the purported explanations. At first it was suspected that the spherical objects could have been meteoroids. However, this was ruled out by scientists due to the unusually high number and equally unusual flight behavior of these objects. Common characteristics of these ghost rockets, as described by both military and civilian eyewitnesses, were great speed, intense light, frequently associated with a missile, lack of sound, and approximate horizontal flight, and none of these fits with flying objects of natural origin like meteors, asteroids, or comets. The interesting part was the Swedish government tried to blame the UFO sightings on Soviet Union, accusing the Soviets of attesting the captured German V-2 rockets, a good diversionary tactic that many people believed. But years later, it came out that the Soviets had immediately moved the captured V-2 rockets to Poland. So again, if we just look at the facts, one possible explanation is that the objects were Soviet missiles. And that's supported by the fact that the objects came from the direction of the USSR and that German V-2 rockets had already gone off course several times during World War II when they took off from Pinamunda and hit southern Sweden. For example, on June the 13th, 1944, 
at Bekigbo in Småland. In other words, the Swedish military and especially the Air Force were well accustomed to seeing V-2 rockets. This was countered by the fact that there were also reports of sighted objects flying very low. And on top of that, as I say, they know what these rockets look like. And even if they kept it quiet because they didn't want to antagonize the Russians, why wouldn't it have been released when they released all those files? There's no reason to keep this a secret now. The Swedish government covered up the entire incident and started releasing information only 40 years later. And like I say, when they released everything, they didn't release any rocket pieces. One interesting incident happened on the night of June 9, 1946. A brilliant light streaked over Helsinki, Finland, with a smoke trail and the sound of thunder. Its luminous trail persisted for 10 minutes, and the same incident repeated the next night. Except in this case, the ghost rocket turned and went back in the direction from which it had come, which certainly ruled out the possibility again of it being a natural phenomenon like a meteor or an asteroid. That the sightings began in the immediate months following the Second World War's end, given the literal wall of secrecy that the Soviet government had put on their activities, many would say that that was justification enough that the Soviets were behind the sightings. But again, I ask, why have we never found anything in the Soviet archives? Why would they still keep a V-1 cruise missile, which was basically 1930s technology, why would they keep that a secret after all these years? This theory doesn't really stand up, like I say. Given the huge continued presence of the American military on their doorstep, not to mention the depletion of their armed forces due to war, it would not make sense that the Soviets would want to draw attention to themselves, particularly if it was weapons that they were testing. They could do it in complete secrecy, in private, in the wilderness of Siberia, or the Far East. More mundane explanations offered was the sightings were nothing more than meteors burning up as they entered Earth's atmosphere. Again, the sheer weight of reports that clearly describe machine-type craft encounters says that this doesn't add up, not to mention the claims of objects changing direction in midair. So this leaves realistically two possibilities. The first that the ghost rockets are secret military tests conducted by Western governments. The second, and perhaps the most controversial, obviously, is that they are the product of another, non-human intelligence. There is one other point to consider. The amount of witnesses that saw the objects over or even submerge into rivers, lakes, and other bodies of water. Many ufologists believe there is a connection to strange sightings over water and alleged hidden underground alien bases. Might this be why no debris is ever found? By the time searches are conducted, the object has made its way to a hidden destination. Interestingly enough, many years later, another investigation came to light during this time. The Greek government conducted their own investigation, with their leading scientist, physicist Dr. Paul Santorini, in charge. Santorini had been a developer of the proximity fuse on the first A-bomb and held patents on guidance systems for Nike missiles and radar systems. In other words, this was not your average Joe Blow. This guy was a Mensa-level intelligence. Santorini was supplied by the Greek army with a team of engineers to investigate what again were believed to be Russian missiles flying over Greece. In a 1967 lecture to the Greek Astronomical Society, Broadcast on Athens Radio, he first publicly revealed what had been found in the 1947 investigation. We soon established that there were not missiles, but before we could do any more, the Army, after conferring with foreign officials, i.e. the U.S. Defense Department, 
ordered the investigation stopped. Foreign scientists from Washington flew to Greece for secret talks with me. Later, Santorini told UFO researchers, such as Raymond Fowler, that secrecy was involved because officials were afraid to admit of a superior technology against which we have no possibility of defense. You've heard me go on about this before, folks. Why would governments cover this kind of stuff up? Because if you can't defend your citizens from these objects and you have no chance against them, why are, you, why are your citizens paying taxes and trusting you? At the moment, that is just one of many theories as to what the ghost rockets were. But as it stands, theories are all that we have for the strange and unexplained phenomena. So folks, what are we left with? Altogether, some 2,000 reported sightings were logged, 200 of them being on radar, and a number of fragments were reportedly found by military authorities, like I say, supposed to be about 30. Many ufologists consider the ghost rockets to be the first widespread sightings after World War II of what later came to be known as unidentified flying objects, or UFOs. Forty years later, Swedish air engineer Eric Malmberg, who was the secretary of Sweden's defense staff committee that dealt with this matter during 1946, stated that everyone on the committee, including the chairman, knew that these ghost rockets did not originate from the Soviet Union. No evidence pointed towards that. On the other hand, based on the reports acquired, it appeared that some kind of cruise missile was fired on Sweden. But the problem was that no nation had sophisticated cruise missile technology in 1946. So if ever there was a smoking gun, folks, there it is from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Russian origins were quickly ruled out by the Swedish, British, and U.S. military investigators because no recognizable rocket fragments were ever found. The objects usually left no exhaust trail, some moved too slowly, and usually flew horizontally. They sometimes traveled and maneuvered in formation, and they were usually silent. The sightings most often consisted of fast-flying rocket or missile-shaped objects, with or without wings, visible for mere seconds. Instances of slower-moving cigar-shaped objects are also known. A hissing or rumbling sound was sometimes reported. The ghost rocket reports were not confined to Scandinavian countries. Similar objects were soon reported early the following month by British Army units in Greece, especially around Thessalonica. In an interview on September the 5th, 1946, the Greek Prime Minister, Konstantinos Sideris, likewise reported a number of projectiles had been seen over Macedonia and Salonika on September 1st. In mid-September, they were also seen in Portugal, and then in Belgium and Italy. So unless the Soviets were testing extremely secret projects all over Europe with no rhyme or reason, it does make you wonder what was actually going on. And to get to Portugal, they would have had to overfly either Germany and France, or Scandinavia, and then France or England, all heavily covered by radar installations. The 1946 ghost rocket flap represents an intriguing prelude to the flying saucer wave of 1947, in that many of the reports do sound remarkably like descriptions of low-altitude cruise missiles. But there's virtually no possibility that the Soviet Union either possesses large numbers of highly upgraded V-1s with sophisticated guidance systems or other winged, long-range, high-speed guided vehicles at that early date, or that it would have launched them deliberately and repeatedly towards neighboring countries in peacetime even if it did possess them. 
Straddling the gap between UFO waves and war scares, the ghost rockets are one of the earliest examples of Western concerns over proliferation of guided missile technology. So folks, I hope that you've enjoyed that. It's a fascinating case, and it is one of the best as far as number of sightings, witnesses, governments involved, militaries involved, and time frame. And like I say, these were sighted all the way from Belgium, France, Scandinavia, into Portugal, and into Morocco in North Africa, and Italy, Greece. I mean, they were all over. So anyway, folks, I hope that you've enjoyed it, and I hope it gets your mind ticking about what it could have been. Now, as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached. <laughs>